Michael Osterlink here, and I'm talking to Nori Huddle. She's an activist, author, and social entrepreneur, and a friend. How are you doing, Nori? Hi, Michael. I'm doing well. How are you? It's good to hear your voice again. It's uh, good to hear yours as well. I think the last time I saw you was uh, mid-2000s in Ecuador. Is that true? This is correct. And yeah, it was great having you down here and lots of changes since you were here. We hope you make it down again. Uh, we'll definitely I think you'd enjoy seeing all that. Yeah, we'll definitely love to come down and see all the new changes. And that's one of the things I do want to talk to you about. Um, you, you have an amazing adventuresome life. Uh, what I'd like to actually do is start when you were 25 and you retired. Can you tell that story? Sure. Uh, I was working at the National Education Association as an administrative assistant to the director of the student NEA, and it was a good job, good pay. Um, and one day, very unexpectedly, as I was walking home from work, I had this super antsy, uncomfortable feeling that I had never felt before. And when I got home, I um, threw myself down in a big overstuffed chair in the living room and I went infinite. Uh, you just kind of take a deep breath and open out and just connect with the infinite. And I said, okay, God, you and I need a conversation. I don't like feeling like this. And I know that you know why I'm feeling like this. And I'm going to, I want you to know I'm sitting here in this chair until you let me know. So it took about 10 minutes uh, because I guess I was <laughs> somewhat resistant to the idea. And I suddenly had that feeling of 10 tons of brick landing on the top of my head and this epiphany that I was getting addicted to the steady paycheck. And then the realization came that if I got addicted to the steady paycheck, I might forget who I am and what I came here to this earth in this lifetime to do. So the next thought was, I've got to quit my job. <laughs> and then the next thought was, no, I've got to retire. I've got to retire and only do what makes absolute sense to me for the rest of my life. And at that point, the, another voice kicked in and said, but you'll starve. <laughs> and then I had a conversation that went back and forth for a while. I said, no, I'm not going to starve. I can always do little jobs and walk dogs and type manuscripts or do, do translations because I spoke three languages at that point. And I... Uh, uh, plus English, I guess. And then at that point, I just, the next day I went in and I told my boss that I was retiring. And he looked at me as if he could not possibly have heard me correctly. I was 25, but I looked about 15 at the time. And when I explained, he almost cried. And I realized he'd gotten addicted to the steady paycheck and had never had never broken the addiction. And over the course of uh, almost 50 years now, I've, I've found that a lot of people have been in that situation where they just um, didn't love what they were doing. They, it wasn't really what they were here to do. And um, that it's, that's been a major, major issue in, in society is people 
taking that step and leaping over the cliff. And I can say as someone who did that pretty early in the process, because a lot of people are doing it now, um, it, when you take that step over the cliff, you discover you have wings. And it just is a decision that makes all the difference in life. You know, before we go on with the rest of the story of what happened, how it unfolded after that, you know, it, it, first of all, obviously you're a female. It was the 70s. As you just noted, it wasn't something that many people did, if any, really. You didn't have role models. Like today, there are people you can look up to and study and learn how they actually kind of dropped out and kind of created their own lifestyle and designing, et cetera, et cetera. What was it about you that allowed you to have the courage just to step off the cliff? Um, you know, I didn't even think of it as courage back then. It was actually in 1970. It was, uh, I think, toward the end of that year. And um, I had already been, you know, doing quite a number of things that were a little unusual. I had been an exchange student in Italy. I'd been two years in the Peace Corps. So I already had kind of a sense of my own uh, ability to deal creatively with pretty much any situation that came up pretty and basically my my way of doing that was what I when people say to me today or through this last almost 50 years what is your work what do you do and I just say I only have one job in life and that's to stay connected in other words we can walk around feeling, experiencing ourselves as separate, isolated individual beings, uh, kind of randomly floating around in life, or we can experience ourselves as part of an infinite, eternal field that's conscious and tune into that consciousness and, and we just know what to do. And I mean, when you do that, that, that living that way makes life a completely different experience. So I had already had a lot of practice in doing that and making that decision to retire and do what only made absolute sense to me for the rest of my life was, was actually a fairly logical step in a way. And I, I just felt so good when I did it, I knew it was the right thing. I, I think that that's a really good indicator when we're happy, when we feel more alive, when we just know that we're, uh, I call it kind of like the golden check mark on the path of life, indicating that you're doing the right thing. So it was fairly, actually fairly natural for me to do that step. That's, that's fantastic. And, and a kind of a great mental model that you have that kind of drives you mental, emotional, maybe spiritual model that you have that drives you and uh, can definitely be a great model that other people can follow as well. So you retired, you're age 21, at, uh, age 25, I think you said. What happened next? 25. 25. 25. Um, well, I had about three months of savings, so I ended up going up to New Hampshire. I was in a relationship at the time, and the guy was uh, finishing up his uh, college at Dartmouth, and I went back, I went up there with him, and I, um, I got a part-time job teaching 
in the language lab at Dartmouth, and then I took a couple of classes. One of them was Chinese, which I'd always wanted to learn. And and um, about a year later, less than a year later, I got an opportunity uh, to go to Japan. I was offered a scholarship and ended up going over there to a conference. And when I got over there, I, I it was quite actually quite dramatic. I I was blown away by the pollution over there. This was 1971 in the summer, and it was the pollution was just awful. And uh, I remember being stunned that I didn't know about this, and I was a relatively well-educated person, and that I didn't know anything about the pollution over there, and I had the thought, someone needs to write a book about this and expose it to the, the rest of the world. And I had this feeling of the finger of God pointing at my nose. <laughs> and, and I immediately went into excuses. Well, I don't speak the language. I, I don't know anything about the pollution problem over here. Um, and I, then I had, like, it was like the impression of a voice in my head saying, yes, but you've got child's eyes and you will get the job done. And I said, oh, okay. And so that was my first major assignment, uh, was to write, write a holistic analysis of the Japanese environmental crisis and what it meant to the whole world. And um, a young man I met at the, the conference I went over to Japan for was doing a five-year Yale uh, university BA program and he was bored out of his gourd with what he was doing so I invited him to work with me and the two of us co-authored a book that I, I, I still feel very good about today and he graduated from Yale on the basis of our book and he's now a professor at Harvard so uh, and it's continued working in the field of environment so uh, that book was really that was my first sort of launch into writing i'd always wanted to write a book but i finally found an issue that was really important to me and took on the, the assignment <laughs> so while researching and writing the book what, what did you learn about us as a species in general and more specifically about the japanese and how they're doing things and how what they were doing was a symptom I think you might agree to that, of a larger problem that we continue to face even today. Yeah, that's a, an interesting question, the way you formulated it. Um, I'd say the biggest thing that I see, and this still is with me today, is that we've, we've organized civilization in a way that is not sustainable for the long haul. And the Japanese, after losing uh, World War II, uh, they envisioned themselves up to World War II as the citadel of spiritualism, and, so, and that the United States was a citadel of materialism. And when they lost, they basically uh, embraced whole, wholeheartedly um, the Western idea of, of materialism as the foundation of civilization. And they worked as hard as they could, and they worked very, very hard over there, to develop a, uh, a new society that would be based on material, the material um, 
criteria, you might say. And they were extremely successful in doing that. I mean, it's referred to as a Japanese economic miracle. What they did, though, was that they basically threw out all the values that they had had of uh, frugal elegance and, and using things and relationships and all of that. They threw out all of that so that they could catch up with the West. And today I see that uh, the problem really goes back several thousand years where we've designed an economic system that basically leaves out the natural world and is disconnected from this, this sense of total oneness with the cosmos. So we have a, uh, a short-term reward and incentive system that is driving us, that is long-term <laughs> leading us to commit really uh, species suicide and take virtually everything else with us. In fact, I gave a TEDx talk uh, last fall in, uh, up in Winnipeg that can be found at bestgame.org, which is a five-point program for rapidly transforming human civilization so that we can really survive and prosper and regenerate the very deteriorated natural environment. I mean, we've destroyed, Michael, we've cut down in the last five, 6,000 years about 46% of all the trees on Earth. And since 1970, I think it's about half of the large mammals have been killed off. We've killed massive numbers of ocean animals. And um, honeybees are under assault. And the insect populations in a number of places now have dropped by maybe somewhere around 30%. So it's not a very good set of indicators. Uh, so And... I think that people are waking up pretty rapidly now and realizing something's wrong, something isn't working right. And I think more and more people are realizing we have to dramatically change the, the way we're living with each other and the way we're living in relation to the environment and to the natural, the, you know, the animal kingdom and also the way we're living in relation to the cosmos. And so that, that's very encouraging that we're waking up fast, but we're gonna to have to do it really quickly. We're gonna, as one of the people I interviewed in my third book said, we're gonna to have to be some pretty smart cookies to uh, fi fix up the mess we've created. Right on. Let, let's uh, personalize your, what you just talked about in terms of the kind of global consciousness crisis that we have. You know, you did something, you've done many things that are quite interesting, but one of the things that maybe we could talk a little bit about is that you, up until a point, consciously decided to have a very simplified life. You know, minimal possessions, um, not worried about earning lots of money to buy stuff that wasn't your thing. And yet you decided at one point that you needed to experience what it's like to live the quote-unquote American dream, mortgage, etc. Can you talk about, first of all, like, part of your simplicity of thinking, the way you lived your life, then your experiment with the American way of living one's life? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I had a very powerful prophetic dream when I was about 13 going on 14. And I thought I might die in 10 years, just the way the dream unfolded. And uh, one of the things that I, I did was um, I started reading the great books and then the great books of religion in the next couple of years. So when I was 14, 15, and 16, I read the, a whole bunch of uh, great literature, and then the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, the Tao Te Ching, the Quran, and I was comparing them, trying to find purpose and meaning, and and where these great books and these uh, religious books all came together. And I remember one shortly after having uh, read um, what's it called, Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis. Hmm. It was a story of a man who had. Uh, had a dream in life that he wanted to do something great with his life. And then over the years he got a job. I think he sold insurance or something and he began eating too much and drinking too much and sitting in front of the TV too much. And he gradually lost the dream. And I saw that so many people around me were kind of babbits, you know, and I got down on my knees, tears streaming down my face. And I, went infinite and I said, dear God, please don't give me a lot of money until my consciousness is clean, until I can find a way that everyone can have clean consciousness and a lot of money too. So I basically made a covenant and tied my fate with everyone's, uh, which I guess isn't really what you, most kids do at uh, 13, 14. So, uh, I saw that someday I was gonna, going to be quite wealthy, but I decided that I wanted to experience the stay, stay connected with um, a that what we call poverty is not really about money. It, it's more about a state of spirit and a, a state of education and a, not having a sense of purpose and meaning. It's another kind of poverty. So in the, um, it sort of evolved fairly naturally that I was just living very simply. I uh, became vegetarian when I was over in Japan. I read Diet for a Small Planet. I became a vegetarian for 30 years. And... Uh, that day, and I have this whole sort of regimen that I did of uh, walking about an hour a day and meditating and doing yoga and so forth. Um, and that went on for as about 30 years. And then, and then I got the message that it was time for me to experience what most people in America are experiencing. And I gotta say that uh, I, buying a piece of land and having uh well i never had a i didn't have a mortgage on that i did buy a second piece of land through a curious set of circumstances so i did have a mortgage on that and that was awful <laughs> it was much more fun to live in the simple gifting society where you basically i i would come into a situation and i was constantly looking how could i be of service and when you do that People really pick up on that, that you're 
you're really there to serve them and they reciprocate. And so it was really a nice way of living. Uh, after I wrote the article that I think you're referring to about living well on $1,000 a year, uh, I also figured out that actually down here in Ecuador, Richard and I have been living on a less than 200 a month for the two of us for the la last um, dozen years, well, about 11 years that we've been down here. So, And I was doing the same in West Virginia, so it's probably been longer. It's probably been more like 40, 40 years that I've lived on a, about 1,000 a, a year. Um, but who's counting? You know, it's not really the point. The, the idea is that I think each one of us is here to do something in life that is uniquely ours. And uh, when we discover that and begin to live that way, OMG, it's a life is, a, is an adventure. It's an epic adventure. It has, you, you just uh, have all kinds of things, people, resources, situations that show up that you could never have dreamed of. And uh, one friend used to say about me, uh, a life in the day of Nori Huddle, which I thought was pretty funny because when I thought about it, you know, you're so busy living life that you're not really thinking about it but recently I've started writing up some stories from my life and I, they just crack me up I just realized I've had the most amazing life and I feel so blessed that I figured this out or that that God dumped that 10 tons of brick on my head when I was 25 so I just wish this for everyone I really do. I think, and I think we need to now redesign the economic and financial system, the reward and incentive system, so that everybody is rewarded to find, each person is rewarded to find their soul's purpose in life and to fulfill it, and that uh, we are rewarded for regenerating the natural environment and that we, um, we really get a much more um, a much more spiritual and uh, natural foundation in life. Because I think we've gotten really off base with the way Western civilization has, I'm not even going to use the word evolved, has developed. You know, it's, it's uh, we've missed some major, major important pieces. One of them I'd like to refer to is actually comes out of the the Greek, which is, um, there are two words in Greek that I think are super important for us to pay attention to. One of them is oikos logos, and the other is oikos nomos. Oikos logos uh, means the deep structures of the home and refers to the earth, the deep structures or the deep logic of the earth. And that's the root, the etymology of the word ecology. And the second word, oikos nomos, is the, um, the rules of the home. So the deep structures of the home and the rules of the home. So economy, the rules of the home, have been designed without paying attention to the deep structures of the home. That's why we're cutting down all these trees and killing all these creatures, because we haven't designed the rules right, the game rules that we're living by. Well, you actually are a game player, in quotes. Um, one of the things you, you talk about is the games that we play. Um, one of the games you're playing is... Well, I'm sorry? Yeah, the best game on earth. 
which is a nice plug for your for your work. <laughs> um, one of the things you you are now doing in Ecuador, you've been doing it for a while, is regenerative agriculture, among other things that are going on down there. Can you give us some insight into what's happening with you and your work down in Ecuador? Sure. Uh, there are a couple of things. First off, um, curiously, we um, we came down here. I came down here with uh, uh, Richard Wheeler, a friend at the time. We're now married. And uh, we had a, a nice vacation. And toward the end of it, we went out to see a piece of property that was described as being in great disrepair, uh, semi-abandoned farm, but in a pretty location on a river. So we came out with zero intention of buying land. And in 30 seconds on the land, we just stared at each other and realized that we'd just been spiritually hijacked and that we were supposed to buy this piece of land and something wanted to happen here. And it was so powerful. I, I uh, <laughs> you kind of had to be here, you know? <laughs> and so anyway, we did, we bought, bought the, this piece of land, and then we bought a, the second half of the original farm. Within a couple of years, we uh, had we had a fifty-year flood, which had been horribly exacerbated by the provincial governments throwing dirt and rock into the river and closing it in half in several places. And then the 50-year flood ripped out about four acres or so of our best bottomland, and we ended up suing the government using rights of nature, which had been introduced into the Ecuadorian Constitution So we, uh, in 2008. So we literally became the voice of the Rio Vilcabamba and, and Miracle of Miracles, ended up winning the first lawsuit in Ecuador and in the world defending the rights of nature. So um, that was, that's given us a very interesting platform that continues to evolve because rights of nature has now been picked up as a theme around the world. I was just at a conference in uh, a, a couple of months ago, end of September, in uh, Quito, where people from all over the world who were prosecuting rights of nature cases were, came together and we had a big gathering. And uh, I gave a presentation uh, on what was happening with our river. We've continued having to fight, fight for the river here because a mining concession moved in just upstream from us to do, uh, mine river rock. And so we have a lawsuit against them now and have discovered all kinds of crooked stuff that they pulled off to get their permits. But somewhere in this, I had a big flip happen in my mind and I, an epiphany. And uh, it was the night before I was giving my talk in Quito. I, I pitched softball, varsity softball, high school and college, and I always preferred playing on the offensive team than the defensive team, because when you're on the offensive team, you get to make up the strategy. And so anyway, in my talk, I, I said, you know, that, we're, that it had occurred to me the night before that what, uh, what we needed to do now was shift from uh, suing the uh, 
this mining concession, while we'll continue to do that, but then to build a proactive, positive campaign to turn the entire sacred valley where we're living, which is called the Valle Sagrado or Sacred Valley, to turn the entire valley into a protected area without any mining done here. And uh, one of the, th the miracles that I discovered is, uh, and that, this is only a week ago that I discovered this, uh, talking with a journalist in town who's been active on environmental stuff, I learned that in 1969, the president of Ecuador uh, at the time declared this valley a Reserva Nacional, which is like a protected area, a national reserve or preserve. So this gives us a fantastic legal basis on which to do what we're calling for. I've, I've written up a, a vision statement just a, in sort of a kind of to dump my own ideas out about what might happen here. And I've been talking with local people and gathering ideas and everybody is excited about this. And this is, I love this because I think we, we as a species need to look at what kind of human beings we want to become, what kind of world we want to live in. And if we, each of us step up to the plate and take the, take action right where we are to turn our little piece of, of uh, where we're living into a garden of paradise, pretty quickly we can turn the whole earth into a garden of paradise. And I think there are a number of very interesting and promising things on the horizon. So we're getting both the, the carrot and the stick. The stick is that if we don't change, if we don't transform rapidly, we're going to probably uh, create the sixth mass extinction event in the history of the world and go down the tubes along with the dinosaurs. Uh, but if we come together and have this great awakening, we can transform human civilization very rapidly and, and make it truly a collective great epic adventure. So again, I would refer people to the TEDx talk that's posted at www.bestgame.org because that's where I lay out sort of an overall strategy. And I, I'm very happy to hear and be in communication with people who want to want to play together because we have a big job in front of us and it's going to take all of us. Amen. So um, you gave a link to your, <laughs> your TEDx talk. Can you also give uh, some information both about the Garden of Paradise where people can find out more about your amazing place in Ecuador as well as your books you've written? Okay, Garden of Paradise uh, can be, the, the link to the website is gardenofparadise.net. And uh, I think there's a lot of information there. It's pretty self-explanatory. And there's, there's both at bestgame.org and gardenofparadise.net. There are uh, ways to reach us. Um, as for books, I've written seven books now. Actually, I have an eighth one I just finished uh, re-editing, which is called The Little Gray Fox, which I think is quite lovely. And I'm, I'm now looking for whether to publish that 
how to do it, whether self-publish or to, I keep getting Hay House, but I don't know. We'll have to see because the publishing world has changed and uh, just have to see how that goes. But one of my books, which I think is a fun read, is called Return to the Garden. That's on Kindle. That's my latest one. And that's um, uh, posted on Kindle, Return to the Garden. Uh, it's a fast read, but it's it gives a kind of a neat overview of what's possible. Uh, I'm thinking of revising a few things in it, but it's a good, it's a fun romp. It's gotten all five-star reviews on Kindle. It didn't sell a lot, and that was that got me super interested in how the publishing world has changed and how the whole internet marketing thing works. So that's been a something I've been digging into. Um, my other books. The first one was called Island of Dreams, Environmental Crisis in Japan, and that's the analysis of the Japanese environmental crisis and what it means for the earth. The second one, I organized a bicycle trip across the United States after I returned from Japan and about a nine month trip. And that's only come out in Japanese. I've been looking at uh, typing up the manuscript and revising it a bit for an American audience including some things I didn't include in the Japanese version. Uh, but that was called Travels with Hope, or in Japanese, Kiboto no Tabi. The third one actually made the longer New York Times bestseller list, and it, there are some copies occasionally available on Amazon, and that's called Surviving. And then the subtitle is The Best Game on Earth, and that was... That was where I had the big aha that we need to create a new life game that is so much fun and works so well and is so life affirming and regenerative of our spirits and our natural world that everyone wants to play because it's so much fun. <laughs> and then let's see, after the next one was Butterfly, and that one's become a global meme, and there's, there's an ebook version available at bestgame.org. And that tells the story of global transformation through how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, and that one's been picked up by a number of uh, spiritual leaders, including Deepak Chopra and uh, others who have been using the story uh, for quite a number of years now. That came out in 1990. Wow. And then, uh, and, oh, and I paid for Butterfly by <laughs> helping to bring Xerox machines into the Soviet Union while I was doing citizen diplomacy over there. So that was kind of a neat way to fund Butterfly because I think that Xerox machines in the Soviet Union kind of opened up information flows in a very Butterfly way. Um, let's see, then there's a, I, I can go, you know, there's a one that's called Huggles that I think in some ways is going to probably sell better than the others, but I haven't, I haven't really, uh, done much marketing it. So it's, it's a story of a furry little creature who discovers his woods are going to get cut down. It's a coloring or a more than a coloring book for children. Uh, who love animals and and trees um, and living things. So it, that one is, we're going to get that one out sometime soon on the internet. We, we have so many things where now we're starting to have some people show up who are eager to collaborate with us and make cool stuff happen. 
There's one that I'm going to be posting pretty soon, which is called, it's not a book, but it's a little video, short video series that we're going to do called Hamsterella. And uh, <laughs> Hamsterella is, uh, you know, you, I get into this sort of funny mode of speaking that, you know, Hi, I'm Hamsterella, and I love you, and I want you to help make the world a really nice place, not only for human beings, but also for hamsters, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and that's going to be all about very short solutions, you know, short versions of pe where I have longer pieces that are written, but just to kind of... Uh, in a very fun way, catch people's attention. And then if they're interested in digging deeper and learning more, there's, they can get, you know, they'll have leads for doing that. Mostly, Michael, I see that we really need to make this fun. You know, that if we're going to have something that's going to capture the attention and the involvement of people, it just needs to be a lot of fun. So that's, you know, that's a big piece for Richard and me now is having it be a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I'll say this, having spent some time with you, I can see why fun is your thing because you are a lot of fun yourself. You're very playful, uh, but playful in leading towards uh, a better life for all of us, both our species as human beings and, and the total totality of life on our planet. Um, Nora, it's been uh, fantastic to talk to you and get caught up. I hope to either see you when you're back here in the States, so, uh, maybe if you're visiting uh, DC Metro, West Virginia area, or maybe uh, down in Ecuador. Hey. Y'all come. <laughs> a very big hug to you, Michael, and thank you for everything you're doing. Well, it's great to talk to you and hope to see you soon. Ditto. Thank you, friend. Bye-bye.